If you've been with us for a few weeks, you know we're coming off of Easter. Hope everybody had a great Easter, by the way. It was pretty, pretty awesome. Weather turned out pretty nice, uh, all things considered. So we'll take that and uh, opportunity to spend time with uh, family and friends, hopefully. You know, we're, it's been a crazy Easter this year. We had the opportunity to remember again why we celebrate this, this season. Why is it a big deal? And uh, it's this whole resurrection thing. It's kind of a big deal. And so we, this year, particularly, God's been kind of bringing that to the fore over and over again. And, uh, and so this morning, we, we've been spending a few weeks here in the Gospels talking about the death of Christ, right, and the resurrection of Christ last week, but now this new life in Christ that we have. And these things are intimately tied into the Easter story, right? So we have the reality and the requirement of Christ's death on the cross as a sin offering for the whole world, and that's what we remembered in the first week of the series. And, and then we have the uh, miracle of miracles of resurrection from the dead of Christ himself. And not just a, a miracle because he was raised, but that the scriptures proclaim that he's the first fruits of the resurrection, which means that indeed you and I will be raised as well. And so it's, it's, you know, it's not just a, a theological conviction that Christ is raised, but it's a practical reality for those who are believing in him, that in the same way that Christ was raised first, so will we be raised. Now, I will be the first to commit, uh, to, to, uh, to say that uh, uh, that's a mystery in that, how that works. We're talking about that practically. We've had a few deaths this week in the church. We've had the opportunity that God uh, provided for us to stand on uh, resurrection ground and consider again, ponder again, the reality of resurrection for all of us. But we know that that's what the pr- scripture proclaims, that Christ, the first fruits, and then the rest. So that's what we're talking about is resurrection on Easter Sunday. Now, then, what do we do? So we know that Christ died for our sins, and we know that he was raised from the dead, as will we be. So what does our life look like? And that's what we talk about today. It's, it's a, a God, a king worth a living for. So not only is it the opportunity we have to believe in his salvation, but also to be like him in this life, and that's what we're going to talk about today. All right, cool. Uh, we're going to do what we always do at Family Bible Church. We're going to pray. Uh, we pray because um, Jesus thinks it's a big deal, right? My house should be a house of prayer for all nations. I hope in your own personal life, you spend time praying daily, right? Um, you spend time just t- talking to the Lord. So if we're going to do this morning, we're going to pray. Uh, join me if you would. Father God, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity we have now to be with you together. And uh, not that we have not been with you, but to spend this time intentionally listening to your word we pray, Father God, that you would give us wisdom. We have none of our own, and that's not any kind of false uh, confession. I mean, we, left to our own abilities, we'd be hopelessly lost, um, and yet you reveal yourself to us. And so this morning, we pray for revelation. We pray that you would um, disclose to us the things we need to know, that we might live this life in a manner worthy of you, in a manner glorifying to you, and that uh, we'd be changed because we know you. So, Father, for the work that you can only do, we ask you for that. We ask you to give us wisdom and insight and understanding. We ask your Holy Spirit to begin or continue to work in and through us uh, that we might more fully know you and become more fully known by you. Um, Help us to conform to your word. Open our minds, our ears, our eyes to the truth of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So we're going to work in a couple different places this morning, but we're going, to, uh, we're going to pick up. We've been in the Gospel of Luke for the series, but we're going to pick up in the Gospel of John this morning. And so we've been talking in the series about the experience of Easter, the experience of walking through the reality of the Easter season. And we're going to go to John uh, chapter 20. I don't think we have a page number for you this morning. I apologize for that. But if you grab a Bible off the end of the chair, you can find it. John is in the New Testament. It's in the back half of the, of the book. And uh, John chapter 20. And we're going to be looking at verses uh, 19 through 23. I'm just going to read the word, and then we're going to talk uh, through it carefully. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them, and he said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. So this is a post-resurrection story. This is an appearance. You know, we talked last week about how um, the ladies, had, women had gone to the tomb and seen his body was not there. And different narratives tell that story a little differently and how that was disclosed back to the disciples. But here you have the disciples now, after we talked about that last week, and they're huddled together in a room, right? And they're, they're not sure what's coming on. So we're going to kind of just walk through this and understand the state of what it meant to be in a post-resurrection world as a disciple of Jesus Christ. You might think they were just like, yeah, this is awesome and everything is great now, but you can see that's not really the case. Um, you see that they're standing in a room. Let's go back here in verse 19. On the evening, on the first day of the week, the disciples were together. That's a good thing. But they had the doors locked because they were afraid of the Jews. So there's a first idea that I want us to understand practically in our life. Okay, that fear is a persistent uh, state for human beings. Like, I don't know if you ever feel anxious about the way things are or are full of fear about the, this life that we live, but that's not an uncommon experience. And as a matter of fact, you all know quite well, we can be manipulated by fear in our lives. And it seems that the disciples were standing in fear in this room. Although they were together, they were still in fear uh, to the point that they had the door locked, right? Lest anyone should come in and surprise them. But there's a, a great uh, truth being taught here in Scripture and it's that Jesus came and stood among them in their fear. And so that's the first thing I want us to understand as we consider post-resurrection life. That no matter, it's not like everything's all perfect and good, but no matter what's going on in our lives, Jesus shows up in the middle of that and just stands with us, right? Like, I don't know if you think about the subtlety of that, but why is it that he would show up and stand in the middle of the He could have done a whole bunch of things. He could have knocked on the door and said, hey, it's me, let me in. He could have um, whispered in their ear before he showed up, like, hey, I'm going to be coming, get ready for me. But instead, in the middle of this kind of cowering, fear-filled place, Christ stood with them. And I know we can talk about the miracle of the locked door, right? We can say, well, how do you get in? The door is locked. Like, we're trying to make a case about his ability to, to uh, what a, you know, like, transmorph through walls or whatever, you know, like the Houdini or something. But there's a bigger truth here that in their most, where they felt like, I'm, I'm secure, I've made myself safe, in that place, Christ has shown up to stand with them. So I wonder what the fear looked like then for the disciples I wonder what, why were they locked in the room to begin with? 
I think there's a few things here we can consider. The first is, they probably had a really practical fear for what has happened, right? I mean, again, as much as they were in awe of the resurrection and they were in awe of what was being said about the resurrection, they were still full of fear of what, was, what had just happened in, in a very practical way. So, so that's one thing. I want to kind of leave that there in the history, that they were afraid of what had already happened. That can, things that have happened in our past can, can cause us to have a fear-filled response right now, whether or not that's a, a valid concern. And so they had this experience of Christ crucified, and then they're just afraid, perhaps, because of what happened. But then, of course, there's something else, is they could have a fear of what might happen, right? So they're in the room, and they know that the crucifixion has happened, and the death, and they don't understand it, and it's a very hostile time to be a Christian, and so then they can stand there, and they can be afraid of what's possible, right? So it's a little different there. You're, you're no longer afraid. You can be afraid of the past, and that'll be enough to stop you in your tracks, but here they could be afraid of what could possibly happen. And as a matter of fact, I think this is, um, this is probably more the case because of what we're going to hear about what they're afraid of. What does the word say? They're locked in the room for fear of the Jews, for fear of the accusers, for fear of people who would, who would um, call them out. or who would. Uh, and so really, if you think about it, there was fear of other people. They're afraid. What are they going to do to us now? What's this going to mean for us? And here they're locked in their fear. So they have a fear of the past, perhaps. They have a fear of what else might happen. But then they have a, a fundamental fear of other people or of being found out by other people, Right? And so they had secured themselves in this room. I think the first words of Christ are important here as we consider uh, his appearance, standing with them in their fear. And this is what he says. Peace be with you. That's the first greeting he gives. Hey, calm down. It's going to be okay. As a matter of fact, the word peace there um, means quietness or it means rest, um, it means a oneness or a joining together, a rejoining together. Uh, one of my favorite uh, understandings that kind of unlocks something for me is like it, it means to be reset to one. I don't know if you're a fan of like the whole turn it up to 11 thing. I know a few of you are. I'm an 11 guy. It's like Jesus goes, dial it back, y'all. <laughs> peace. Calm down. Do you, do you, I wonder if he's saying peace because he just appeared in the room or he's saying peace because he knows that they're not settled. He knows that they don't have peace. See, those are two things that it's really hard to have in the room at the same time. Peace and fear, isn't it? Because fear will drive peace out of your life. And so his greeting is peace be with you, oneness, calmness, settle down, dial it back. It could also be because he had showed up in the middle of the room, to be fair. So here they're just standing in the room in the middle of their fears, and Jesus shows up and he, he, he greets them with peace, peace, quietness. And then he begins to demonstrate for them. Verse 20, after he said this to them, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. The word says that he exhibited himself to them. Look, it's me. He shows them the wounds, the wounds that they would have recognized from the thing that was driving their fear, right? The, the wounds that they would have seen inflicted upon him on the cross that they, that they were completely devastated by. And he uses the same wounds that he was devastated by to, to greet them, to show them after his greeting of peace, to demonstrate who he is. It's a pretty wild uh, thing that would happen, right? That you would be able to see these, these wounds that had caused such great pain and suffering that were in, unimaginable or now being demonstrated as a sign of peace. 
It's okay. It's me. I'm here. I'm fine. Showed that what? That he's okay? Don't be afraid anymore. I'm fine. Or perhaps to demonstrate that it was truly him. Lest they think that they were seeing some illusion or, or someone else. No, it was indeed Christ standing in their midst, in the middle of their suffering. He's with us. It's going to be okay. The whole theme here, by the way, must have been a bit like Jesus is back, you know? Like, Jesus is back. This is cool. Awesome. Because we just lost him, but here he's back with us. And look at the response. I think we, that's, that's, that's kind of show, shown here in the scripture. It says, after he had shown them his hands and his side where he had been wounded for our transgressions, then the disciples were filled with joy. The word says overjoyed. They were overflowing with rejoicing. We talked about rejoicing before, haven't we? What it means to be excited about something. And they were overjoyed when they what? Beheld the Lord, when they saw him. And that's kind of an interesting thing, because you think, wait, he's been talking to him, he's in the room, but they finally recognized that it's the Lord. And in the recognition of Christ, it's really you, you're really here. Their joy returned. They rejoiced, right? Um, they were excited again. And so they began to get kind of, this is awesome. Jesus is here. He's back. I, I mentioned... Um, all that because they, they begin to uh, hail him and worship him. Um, you can imagine that they, they got uh, super excited. But the very next thing he says to them again, and we're going to get there in a minute, is peace <laughs> again. So I think it's interesting. The response is overjoyed, and then uh, Jesus tells them peace. The disciples had journeyed then from a place of real fear, of abject fear, of being locked in a room, of, of feeling safe, but are, are trying to make themselves feel safe, but not truly being safe at all, right? So still being at risk to a place of real joy. Jesus is back. This raises a couple questions in my life. Um, the first is this. Are you a disciple of Jesus? We haven't talked about this in a while, and I want to unpack it for a minute, because sometimes we have a tendency to put discipleship on some high holy shelf that means that none of us can get there. That's not true. We've said before, discipleship means you're willing to learn from Jesus. That's it. Wake up in the morning, you say, Jesus, teach me something today. You're in a situation at work or at home with your family and your life, and you say, Jesus, teach me something in this. You don't know what's next, and you say, Jesus, I don't know what's next. Teach me. That's what it means to be a disciple. It means to be open to instruction, open to learning. And so the first question that I raise is, are you yourself a disciple of Jesus? Are you open to his teaching in your life? Are you open to the, in, in the most fear-filled places to what he may have to say to you or to me? And if so, what areas of your life do you need Jesus to show up in? Now, for you and for me, it's not probably a locked room after resurrection, right? But I believe that many of us are hiding in these rooms where we're afraid. We're afraid to be known, or we're afraid to be found out, and we're afraid to be discovered. We're afraid to be harmed. I see it a lot in life. Fear. Unwarranted fear. So where, could you, where would you like Jesus to show up in your life? Where would you like him to bring you from a place of fear to a place of joy? See, those are different things, living in fear and living in joy. So, we have this model then that Jesus demonstrates in his resurrection. Well, Jesus then, as I said in 21, he says again, which I think is kind of funny because he says again, peace be with you. And so, again, I wonder if even the fervor of their going, yeah, 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 they get a little too excited. He's like, oh, 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 
dial it back to one. <laughs> I got some uh, thoughts about maybe they were thinking, Jesus is back, it's going to be like it's always been, it's going to be awesome, we're going to do the same thing we've always done, that's not going to be what's ha- going to happen though, it's going to be different, um, and we're going to see that now. So Jesus says, again, he says, peace be with you. And then he says these words, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. This is Jesus' new plan. You see, up to this point, the disciples were just the ducklings. They're just going to follow him around. Wherever you go, we're going to go. Whatever you do, we're going to try and do. You know, I'm going to ask you questions or whatever. And then Jesus makes this statement, his his post-resurrection appearance. He says, peace, peace, and peace. As I was sent, I'm going to send you. Jesus is going to change the model of life and ministry in his church. That's, a, that's a, not a small thing that happens there. We know that he has sent his disciples out before when he was discipling, when he was teaching them as these kind of experimental journeys. They would come back and report what had happened. But he's like, and now I'm going to send you out. The word there actually means to, um, uh, where is it at here, to... Um, thrust into the world. <laughs> See, uh, I just want to nerd out for a minute, but there's this word apostello. It means to me an apostle, right? But that's not the word Jesus used when he says, I'm not going to apostle you. I'm going I'm to thrust you out. I'm going to push you out. I'm going to push you out of this room. I'm going to push you out of your comfort, and I'm going to use you in this world, in this life. It's a little different. It's not quite the same thing, but it's in the same way that he was sent by the Father, as the Father is sending me, I'm going to push you out. I'm going to thrust you out into the world. The word can be interpreted this way. He's dispatching his disciples. That's a good way to put it. He's dispatching them out to do something. You ever been called out on the radio or sent out on a job or, or put on the task? That's what he's going to do to the disciples. And so this is a new model for ministry. This is a new um, uh, opportunity to grow and to, to learn more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, thrust into the world. And then this happens. And with those words, catch that, 22, Jesus said to them, wait, wait. And with those words, Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So not only does he say, I'm going to push you into the world, I'm going to thrust you into the world, but he literally blows on them. That, this is interesting. This is the only time that this word appears in all of Scripture. The word blows there. But it, it means to, like, not breathe, but to blow, right? Like, whew, right? I can't do it. Like, whew, there it is. You hear it? You know? I mean, I just want, we've been trying to, we follow Jesus to the cross, and we follow Jesus to the, or the disciples to the empty tomb, and all this, but I want us to be in that room and understand that in this moment, Jesus blew on the disciples, and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. I'm going to push you into the world. What, what, a, what a strange way to do it, right? It's reminiscent of all the miracles that Christ did whenever he would perform them in different ways, whenever he would heal the blind or heal the sick. He would, he would, we love, we're fa- I'm fascinated with the idea that he didn't do things the same way twice. He didn't make it a formula. It's how he does it. But here he blows on the disciples. His very, the very breath of his lungs, he blows on them and he says those words, receive the Holy Spirit. And it seems very much tied to what he just said. I'm going to thrust you into the world. We ought to catch that. They're tied together. 
that this breath of God, that this blowing, this pushing, this thrusting us out into the world is part of his plan for his church. It's part of his plan for his disciples, those are, who are yet learning about him. The word says that he breathes on them. That's the first thing. But then the second thing is this. He invites or he commands them to receive it. Why would it say that? Like, why couldn't Jesus go, I'm going to thrust you out and go, and they're gone. But no, after he does, he says, receive the Holy Spirit. It's an opportunity. It's a gift. It's a presence. It's his work in their lives. And he says, I'm going to send you out like my father sent me. And then he, he gives them the Holy Spirit. He breathes in them. Now, some of you might know that, that, that um, in the book of Acts, it's recorded how the Holy Spirit fell onto the believers, right? In Acts 2, we know that story. And yet here we have Jesus with his disciples in the room, and he's like giving them the Holy Spirit. He's like, I'm going to push you out of this closed room into a proclamation place. I'm going to push you out into a place where you can go out and share good news. I'm going to send you out to proclaim the kingdom of God, just like the Father sent me here to proclaim his goodness to the whole world. So we have this realization that there's a, what is it, a foretaste? It's the first front of the Holy Spirit, right? It's the first movement. But he's like, receive it. Be open to it. Be open to what I'm doing. I wonder how many of us are open to what God's wanting to do in our lives. You ever feel shoved? <clears throat> Sometimes, uh, I always think of the, the analogy of the bird in a tree, right? Like the baby bird's been cracked out of an egg, just been hanging out in this comfy little nest forever. Every time somebody comes and threatens them, mama comes and like gets crazy. You ever, you ever got into a bird's nest with an egg in it when there's a mama bird around? It's like crazy, right? It's like Alfred Hitchcock movie. You know, it's like, ah, these little egg, right? And it cracks open, and then mom comes, and dad comes, one of those two, I don't know, chew up food and spit it in the mouth, right? And we think, oh, that's adorable. They're so, look at the babies. They can't do nothing but just, and then, then there's this moment where mom or dad, I like to think it's dad, starts showing them out. Fly, baby. You ain't made for a nest. Fly. And we think, that's so mean. Isn't it? That bird's up there, and that bird's going to hit the ground. Nope. Fly. That's the analogy I get. Or that's the imagery I get of Christ pushing us. Because if it was up to us, we would just stay in that locked room, safe and secure, and go, just feed me, Jesus, feed me. He's like, no, I'm going to blow on you. Receive the Holy Spirit and get out. Go and grow. Experience the truth of what it means to be a disciple of mine. Live your life in a manner that's worthy of my glory says those words, receive the Holy Spirit. I just wonder, are you open to what God's doing? Many of us, and I know there's a line here, many of us are so afraid that we're just like, I'm just going to be super safe about this. I don't know. I don't know. And we pull back from the opportunity where God is breathing on us and pushing us out of the nest and calling us to grow. Jesus blows on them. And he invites them. He commands them. And that's the thing, by the way. There's a little bit of a thing there where he says receive the Holy Spirit, but it's not like a passive receive, like, well, if you feel like it, receive the Holy Spirit. It's like a command, like with an exclamation point, like receive the Holy Spirit. It's not passive. It's not lackadaisical. It's opportunistic. For what? That they may lay hold of the totality of who God is, that the disciples might know more fully. You know how you know that? By experiencing it, by living the gospel. By getting out of the nest, we begin to experience what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, to take risks, to stop letting fear dominate and rule in our lives, to try, 
that's a good word, to try our faith, to live. And this is what Jesus is commanding, is inviting his disciples to do. All this is then rooted to Jesus' uh, uh, you know, sending out, right? This is all part of the plan. But I want you to see the last thing here is this, that he gives the church real power. And this is troubling. I did a whole bunch of digging on this, verse, this one verse because this is troubling because this is what Jesus said then. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone, any sins or anyone's sins, they are forgiven. And if you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. And I'm like, what? That seems crazy to me. That we... that. By receiving his spirit, we have the power to forgive sins and the power to not forgive sins. And I'm like, wait a minute, right? Wait a minute. That doesn't seem right at all. Because only God can forgive sins. Yeah? Like, that's what the scriptures teach. That's why the Jews were so mad at Jesus, because he's like, your sins are forgiven. They're like, that's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. You can't forgive sins. And Jesus says, yeah, I can. He gives the church real power and real authority here. And, and, uh, so there's some subtlety in this, but it's this idea that if we're going to cling on to sinful things, to sinful behavior, if we're going to um, hang sin over people's lives, it's going to continue to hang over their lives. He's saying, you're going to be kind of people like me. You're going to be people who are forgiving sins or binding sins. Choose who you're going to be. If you forgive any sins, they're forgiven. This is like a whole thing here, right? But this idea that we can live in unforgiveness, that we can live a life of unforgiveness. The, the, the word of forgiveness is, is um, juxtaposed with the word of holding on to or gripping tightly over sin. And you, you might even read that as a positive way and say, oh, it means that we're going to wield the sin, we're going to control the sin. But see, there's no controlling sin. You're going to send sin away from your life or you're going to bind sin to your life. That's what the word is saying here. It's interesting that the translation NIV is anyone because it says any sin. I, I'm, I'm not so sure it's about other people so much as it's ourselves equally. It's at least equally about ourselves. That we're going to send sin away from our life or we're going to bind sin into our life. And we're going to have that power, that authority given to us by the Holy Spirit. Why would we do that? Man, we should send it away. Or someone else in our life. Say it is someone else's sin. Why should we bind the sin to them? Send it away. This is the opportunity that Christ gives his church. This is the opportunity that Jesus gives his disciples. He says, receive my Holy Spirit and then enter the sin struggle. How do you do this? How do we, how do, we do this? Practically in, in life. I think a couple of things come to mind. First is this, that whenever, whenever anyone thinks, hey, I, I don't have any sin. I, I don't, I'm good. I don't sin. That you recognize that you, of course there's sin right? I mean, of course I sin. Of course you sin. And so we help one another by saying, yeah, no, there's sin in this, right? So that's the first thing, is to recognize that, yes, we're sinful creatures. But then the second thing is this, then to not bind that sin, to, to go, but that's what Christ died for, that we've forgiven of our sin. Listen to me, church, this morning. Hear me for a minute. How do you find a joy-filled life that's absent of fear? You'll let go of sin, like, you just, in the name of Christ, you go, it's out of here, man. This is what the gospel's for. This is what Jesus died to do, to rid the world of sin, of the burden of sin. We won't be sinless. I'm not saying that. But it's to say we are going to believe in faith. We're going to choose to believe that Christ is wiping that sin of our life. I'm hung up on it, but why? 
Because so many of us walk around with the curse of sin upon us, even though we are bought in the blood of Christ. You know? And we act like, well, there's nothing we can do. It's just how I am. No. No, not anymore. Christ died that we might be free, that we might be overjoyed with his presence, that he might show up in the middle of our fear and break us out of that stupid room that we're trapped in. He says that there, if you forgive their sins, they're forgiven. And if you bind them, they're bound, right? Become gospel people. Become gospel people. That's the call. Be like Jesus. He was constantly saying those things. Your sins are forgiven. I want us to turn real quick into the book of Revelation. Revelation, we're just going to cover four verses here quickly. Because I want you to see that this is the kind of the beginning of Jesus birthing the church through the Holy Spirit's power, through the forgiveness of sins, and with real authority in the world. But I want you to see that there's a time coming that we long for, even now in this life, right now in this life, of Christ's return. And so I want to see the kind of foundation for the revelation. It's in John, or it's in Revelation, uh, chapter 1, verse 4. I'll give you a second to get there. Listen to what the word says. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, right? So it's a revelation to the church. Grace, listen to the words. Grace and what? Peace. That's right, to you. From who? From who is and who was and who is to come. Grace and peace to you, church. You go, man, yeah, Jesus spoke peace then. Listen, Jesus speaks peace now. Peace to us. And, and in the, in the, uh, at the end, the churches, he says these words, grace and peace to you from him, and I want you to see this, who what? Who is, who was, and who will be. Who is and was and will be. The all-encompassing, all-present, ever-present God is giving us grace and peace, right? And what's the word say? From the seven spirits that are before his throne, bringing grace and peace, the seven spirits before his throne, and what? From Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. And here's the word. The firstborn of the dead, giving us grace and peace. And the ruler of the kings of the earth. I want you just to, just to see it. We don't have time to sit on this, but I want you to see it. That the grace and peace has been given by the God who is eternally existent, being given by the seven spirits that are before the throne of God, being given by the Son, Jesus Christ, who is what? The faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings. If you're afraid of anything in life, it ought to be wiped out right there. There's nothing left. <laughs> the, the grace and peace being brought to us over all situations and all circumstances by God himself, that even death ought not bring fear to our lives, and that certainly rulers and kings on this earth should not bring fear to our lives. Because why? We have the grace and peace of God. To him who loves us, the word continues, and has what? Freed us from our sins by his blood. There's the gift. That we have been set free and has made us to be a kingdom. Yes, that's an a, a area of rule, people, and priests. That's the inner interceders between God and man, that the church has been invited to be the kingdom and priest to serve uh, his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Verse 7, look, he's coming with the clouds, man, and every eye will see, and even those who 
pierced him, and all the people of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. And the word says again, what? Amen. That's how it's going to be. Last verse. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord. I am the one who is, who was, and who is to come. And here's the word again, the Almighty. That's the army, the power, the authority. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And all of a sudden you begin to realize, and this is just the introduction, by the way, to the book of Revelation. And all of a sudden you begin to realize that this thing that Jesus starts in a closed room full of fear is manifest before all creation in the kingdom, in the, in the uh, Revelation to the entire world, that the one who breathed upon his church will be there at the end, the one who was and is and is to come, the one with power and authority. That's where we're heading. So we have this time now between being, you know, and maybe, I don't know where you are, but maybe you're still stuck in that little tiny room of fear, you know? Like, listen to God. And I, I get it. I know it can be scary. It's like, what are you doing? But just listen to God and just take that next step with him. God, what would you have me to do? Be careful. Don't run off after your own ambition, but wait and listen. God, what would you have me to do? What are you, what are you, what are you pushing me toward? And then a step of faith, a step of faith to begin to live the life that God has called us to live, to be able to begin to rejoice instead of be full of fear. Because we know this promise is coming. We know this time is coming. We have a glimpse of our future, the future of the people of God. And it's a great story. We ought to live into it now. We ought to live into it now. Uh, begin to practice these things. Here's the final verse. Back in John. John 20, verse 30. 30 and 31. You don't have to turn around. You can if you want to. You don't have to. But after all these things, right, the gospel ambition and everything that's been told and, and, and Jesus saying, I'm going to send out my people, I just want to end with this point, that after all this, the author of the book of John says, um, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, many other things, but here's what I want you to see. But the ones that are recorded, the ones that we talked about today, the breathing of the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, the pushing out of the disciples are recorded for two particular reasons. See what they are? But these are written so that what? You might believe, or the word can be interpreted, you might continue to believe as an encouragement to you that you might continue to believe that the God who started the stuff in you will bring it to completion. That's the first thing, that you would continue to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's the first. That you would believe he's Messiah, that he's the ruler, the authority, the interceder, the, the one that between us and God who makes us pure by his blood. That's first. And then the second. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. Life. <laughs> like, real life, you know? We, we often kind of uh, exchange it, right? We, we short sell ourselves. We pull back from that edge and we don't really truly live. And so the gospel is written. These recordings, these things we talked about today are written so that you might believe he's the Christ, that he died for your sins. I just want to say that real quick. If you're in this room, man, I, I know, I know, I'm, I, like, I wear out on this a little bit, but People go, you don't, you don't know me, or you don't know how sinful I am, or you don't know how broken I am. Yeah, you're right, I don't, but God does. God does. There's no mystery from God. 
You go, I got, I got this one thing. I've struggled with it for years and years, man. And nobody knows I struggle with it. You know, God knows. But listen to me. And I, I just hope, I want to empower, I want to encourage you to believe the good news that we have the ability to go into those places where someone says, I have sinned so egregiously and say, it's, it's not beyond the scope of Christ. Like, I want to embolden you in those conversations with someone who says, you know, it's one thing if they're not saying that they sin. I get it. If I, if I ever say to you, I don't sin, you call me out and you say, Bill, you're a sinner. I go, you're right. I'm a sinner. But if I ever come to you and I, and I say, man, but I've sinned so egregiously, I want, I want someone to come to me and speak truth in me and say, but no sin has gone beyond the power of Christ to forgive. Like, you might be the only person in the room when someone says that, lie out loud, I can't be forgiven for this through tears or brokenness or hopelessness or over a glass of drink. And they just go, I, I can't, I can't. I just want to encourage you, church, to say, that's a lie. <laughs> you can be forgiven in Christ's name. He, he died for you. Speak against it. That's the first that we would forgive sin and then confront sin in our lives so that's the first that, that we, we would believe that he's the Christ and then the second is that we would have life just have life love life enjoy it I don't know where you are I want to pray with us today and I want to pray I want to pray those two things I want to pray that if there's things that we're holding on to that God has set us free from that we would we would that he would break through in that way this morning and I, I mean, like talking to God is no joke. I mean, it's no big deal, but it's no joke. You can talk to God anytime and if we're going to do it in prayer. And the thing that we might find life, we might have life as his disciples today. Now, pray with me if you would. Father God, we thank you so much for the power of your gospel and for the truth of your word. We thank you, Father, that you have indeed set us free, that you have called us into a life of joy and out of fear. And we pray those two things, Father. We pray first that if there's if, if there are people here, first of all, or people listening right now who are hearing this, that, that believe that, that they have done something that, that can never be forgiven, that your Holy Spirit, and not us, but that your Holy Spirit would just work deeply to refute the lie that they're unforgivable, that it's some sin trick that we would believe that what we've done is so egregious that Christ's blood could not cover it, and that we would just know that today that we would let you apply that truth, that we have been set free in your name. We've been called to be your people, that we've been called to be included, that we've been called to be loved. Father, for those folks who maybe would feel unlovable, that your Holy Spirit would speak pure love, that they're loved enough that you would die, that we could be free. Thank you, Father, for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you, Father, for the truth that there's no sin beyond your ability to forgive. Glory, glory to you. And then, Father, for those of us who may have been, we know we're forgiven and we're just comfortable, we're in our locked room, that you would send us out, that you would use us, that you would help us to in, engage in authentic discipleship with you, that you would, even if it terrifies us, you would just show us out of that nest, that we might know you in this life. Help us to find true life, a celebration of all you've done, to become faithful witnesses of the joy of our Lord Jesus. Help us to do that. God, you're so good. We don't deserve it, but yet you give it to us. May we rejoice with you. We praise you. We pray it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.